Morning, church. You see here, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you could stand with me, we'll read a portion of our passage this morning from Luke chapter 19, and then we'll take it apart and look at it and see what the Lord has to say to us. But starting in verse 28, it says, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass that when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing the colt? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Let's pray together and we'll look at this passage. Lord, we thank you for your word that all speaks of your son, Jesus. Everything we need to know about God is in him, especially in him crucified and raised from the dead. Lord, we pray you'd speak to us today. Build us up for your glory which is always to our greater joy. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody who agreed said out loud together, amen. You may be seated. And so verse 28 starts right in, when he had said this, and we saw last time what the this is, right? As he was correcting his disciples' expectations of the timing of the culmination of God's kingdom on earth. They were thinking that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately as Jesus goes this time. He'd been many times into Jerusalem, but this time they're thinking, this is it. The kingdom is coming right now. And so by a parable last time that we were together in Luke 19, we saw the parable that Jesus told that says, in essence, it's going to be a lot longer than you guys expect. My coming, the culmination of the kingdom is going to be a lot longer off than you expect. And we saw what the Lord says on this subject about this meantime. I call it the meantime because it can be a really mean time between wherever you are right now and when he comes. Okay? God doesn't want us to be alarmed, one of the things we saw, over every war, every rumor of war. Every earthquake, it's funny because two weeks ago, Wednesday night, we were sitting here studying Hosea and there was an earthquake. <laughs> Thank the Lord that I think Pastor Ed said this building could withstand almost an 8.0. So we're all safe here. They built this thing like you could shake. This will be the last building standing in Redlands. Yeah. Pastor Ed is a cautious man, a wise man. But he said, I don't want you alarmed at everything that comes along. And it's funny how some pastors actually foster the alarm. They actually love to sensationalize, and it sells books, it packs the churches out, and then here we are still, you know. He wants us rather doing business. This is what we saw. When he had said this, this is the this, when he had given them this correction in their expectation. I want you to be investing in the meantime. 
not sounding alarms, not getting all sensational, not quitting your jobs. I want you to be doing what I've called you to do, what I've gifted you to do. I want you to be investing everything that I've entrusted to you. That was the message. And so when he had said this, he went then on ahead. He's down in Jericho, if you remember. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And this would be the terrain. And this is actually the road that you would walk up from Jericho to Jerusalem, a 14-mile hike up 3,300 feet from the lowest place on planet Earth, on, on land. Jericho, the Dead Sea, it's over 1,000 feet below sea level. So he's going from the lowest spot, which is interesting to me, <laughs> all the way up to Jerusalem, a 3,300-foot 3, hike up. And here's a sketch based on a photo of this. These folks are heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. But this is the hike here in, in this passage that Jesus was taking this road up to Jerusalem where it has been said that the greatest and the holiest of all dramas in world history will be staged this coming week as he arrives into Jerusalem. Jesus knowing full well what awaited him there. The horrors of the cross that he will face on our behalf. Despite the fact that he was a wanted man, he had a price on his head at this point. He went up to Jerusalem in the most public way he possibly could have. It came to pass as he drew near, verse 29, notice there, he came near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet. So coming up here from the lowest land elevation on the planet, he comes now to these two cities that are right on the backside crest of the Mount of Olives. You can't quite see Jerusalem from here, but just a little bit further, and the whole city of Jerusalem comes into view. Okay? He comes to these two towns. And it came to pass that when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, verse 30, saying, go into the opposite village. I want two of you to go into the opposite village here, whereas when you enter, you're going to find a colt that's tied up on which nobody has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here to me. And so we know from other Gospels that this colt is not the colt of a horse. It's the colt of a donkey. We're told in Matthew's Gospel that he's going to ride into Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet. One of the prophecies of the Messiah was that he would come. Zechariah 9.9, we have that passage. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. Messianic prophecy, hundreds of years before Christ. He is just. He's bringing salvation. He's riding. He will ride lowly on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so 
There are over actually 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. 300 prophecies for centuries. The prophets prophesied of the one who is coming. Most of those prophecies, only God the Father could have orchestrated, like the family line that he would be born from. Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and more specifically through one of Jacob's sons, Judah, the tribe of Judah. And then even more specifically, God spoke later to David and said, you're the one. David was from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> David wanted to build God a house. And God said, you're not, I don't need you to build me a house, but I'm going to build a dynasty from your line, David. And David just sat there. He didn't even know what to say. God said, from you, David, is going to come the everlasting king, a dynasty that will never, ever end. When we get to the first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These were prophecies that the Messiah would be born from this family lineage, <clears throat> The scripture also tells us that in, in Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah in chapter 5 verse 2 told where the Messiah would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. You can check out Micah 5 too. But this prophecy here, out of Zechariah 9, 9, this prophecy Jesus purposely set up. This was one that Jesus knew this prophecy and he knew. I, I must fulfill this prophecy, not only to fulfill it, but also to send a message to everybody that knew scripture. And the message was this, here we go. The Messiah is here and he's coming to town. He's gonna finish the business that he came in his first coming to finish. This was a clear signal that Jesus is sending. Now's the time I'm going public, okay? And so he instructs his disciples, go to the village opposite you where you, when you enter, you're going to find this colt that no one has ever sat on. I want you to loose it and bring it to me. And notice verse 31. And if anyone asks you, you loosing it? Why are you loosing this donkey? If anyone asks you, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Tell them, because the Lord needs it. I don't know about you, but it's easy, I think, for some of us when we read stuff like this to kind of assume that this type of thing was common, you know, that maybe back in that culture in that day you could just walk up and untie someone's donkey and ride off on it. That that was kind of just the way the culture was. No. <laughs> What's happening here is very unusual. This is an unusual thing. You know, donkeys serve two purposes, right? They were work animals used to haul things, and they were a mode of transportation, okay? If we would take this and try to understand what Jesus is telling these disciples to do here, and I, I kind of tried to think of a modern-day uh, analogy. Jesus is down in Palm Springs, and he's approaching, he's heading towards Redlands, and he comes into Cherry Valley, and he tells his disciples, I want you to go ahead to Yukaipa. I want you to go to the In-N-Out parking lot right there off the freeway, and you're going to find a brand new F-150, a Ford pickup truck. And I want you to hotwire the thing. <clears throat> yeah. 
And I want you to bring it to me back here in Cherry Valley because I'm going to hop in that thing and we're gonna, I'm going to drive the rest of the way into Redlands. Okay? So you're a first century, you're a disciple of Jesus, right? You're a disciple of Jesus and you're thinking, we can't do this, Lord. You know? The in and out parking lot's always full and half the population of Ukaipa drives pickup trucks. They're all a bunch of cowboys out there. You know, how are we going to find the right truck? This is what the disciples are thinking. If we start, you know, hot wiring one of those trucks, the guy is going to see us. He's in there eating his burger. He's going to look up and go, what is this guy doing? He's going to come out and go, what are you doing? And just tell him, well, the Lord needs it. <laughs> okay, you get the feel for what's going on here? This is what's happening. And so those who were sent, they're like, okay, Lord, we'll do it if you say so. They went their way and they found the donkey just as Jesus had said. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, why are you loosing my colt? Of course the guy would say that. And they said to him what the Lord told him to say, the Lord needs him. Now we're not told the reply of this donkey owner But apparently he said, oh, the Lord needs him. Okay, then I give him for the Lord's use. Go ahead and take him. Because in the next verse it says, then they brought him to Jesus, the donkey. I was thinking as I was studying this and preparing this. Jesus could have just made a donkey out in Cherry Valley. He could have made an F-150 just appear like behind some bushes or something. He could have made a donkey walk out from among the bushes, but it is so like the Lord to want to involve people in the work of his kingdom. You know, that's why he says to these guys, I want you to go. Go and I'll provide. There's going to be this donkey. And he loves to involve the donkey guy, the donkey owner. He wants people to say, go ahead, I give. To one he says, go. To the other he says, give. He involves us in the work of his kingdom. And so here this donkey is brought to Jesus. And notice verse 35, they threw their own clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. So they're beginning to express their worship, their praise of him, their They're getting what's happening here. They're throwing their clothes. They make this sort of saddle out of their clothing for Jesus. They're pampering Jesus here. And as he went, many were spreading their clothes on the road. And we're told in another gospel, they were not just throwing their clothes down on the road in front of him, but they were spreading out what? Anybody know? Palm branches, right? And there's the original Palm Sunday. A few days later, Jesus will be crucified. We're, got, we, we're gonna celebrate Palm Sunday coming up. And then Good Friday, and then the resurrection, the Easter day. And so here, this is their version of what we know as rolling out the red carpet for the king, for, the royal, for royalty. And then as he was now drawing near Notice the descent. So he's in Bethphage and Bethany, which are on the backside crest of the Mount of Olives. And now he's coming over the crest. And oh, this is 
the most glory. I get, I even have goosebumps now just thinking about it. When we go on our tours of Israel, and I've, I've been seven times from Budapest, which is a three-hour flight, no jet lag, $250 flight. It's a lot different than, it's worth it though to go from here, 14-hour flight, a lot more expensive. But what we do on the tours is we go first to all the other places besides Jerusalem. We start, you go to the Mount Carmel where Elijah called down the fire. We go up to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. We go to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was headquartered. Then we go down to the Dead Sea and Masada. But then for the last half of the trip, we come up over those hills that we saw, those, that terrain on the bus. Now we're on the bus. We're not walking. And when you come over the crest of this hill and you see Jerusalem, it's like, wow, Jerusalem. This is the city where it all happened. This was the city. And you go and you stand on the Mount of Olives. Okay, this is what Jerusalem would have looked like. This is more what Jerusalem would have looked like in the first century when Jesus was there than today. You know, today the Alaska Mosque now dominates the Jerusalem skyline, but that mosque was built 800 years after Jesus. Okay, this is, this is how it would have looked like with the temple. You know, the Jewish temple that was built by Solomon 3,000 years ago. 1,700 years before the Alaska Mosque was there, this temple that God called Solomon to build was there on the Temple Mount. Okay? So they're there now. They're going over the crest. Jesus is on this donkey. They're spreading palm leaves and they're spreading their own clothes. They're laying out the royal carpet. And this is the view they have now, looking down from the Mount of Olives onto the city of Jerusalem. And the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice, it says. And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now these specific people that are praising with a loud voice, praising God, singing the words of this psalm. These people were of Bethany and Bethphage, the crowd grew when they came to these two cities. These people had seen the miracle of Lazarus, their neighbor, because Lazarus was from Bethany. Lazarus and his sisters, right? Martha and Mary, they were brothers and they were were siblings. These people had seen the mighty work of their neighbor being raised from the dead as Jesus had raised him. And so now the crowd is praising the mighty works, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. These words of praise are actually right out of Psalm 118, verse 26, which is an Old Testament passage prophesying of Messiah. Here's yet another prophecy of the Messiah that these this song will be sung to him. And so praising him, they're acknowledging him as the long-awaited Messiah. But listen, as we're going to see, we're going to see that their understanding of what Messiah was all about in his first coming was skewed by their strong political desires. Imagine that. They expected 
the Messiah to right then and there. This crowd that's praising him and putting out the royal carpet, they're thinking that right now he is going to bring in his kingdom. He's going to relieve us of our political frustrations. And do you know that everybody has political frustrations in every little hamlet, every little village, every little town, every city across every country of the world? We have ours, and boy, are they going to be amplified in the next eight months <laughs> as we head toward an another presidential election. But they're thinking, they're, part of their excitement is He's going to come right now and he's going to overthrow the Romans who have annexed Israel and were oppressing the, is, the Israelites with heavy taxation, among other things. Their expect, expectation of the Messiah was not based on the full counsel of God's word, but more on their own political desires. I have political desires. And when I read passages like this, I wonder how, how much of my expectation is set by those desires and how much of God's word am I not listening to? Because these guys are set up, they've set themselves up for disillusionment, for depression, for discouragement. Because expectation unfulfilled is what equals disillusionment, depression, discouragement. They've set themselves up. So I'm just sharing with you what I'm going through while I'm preparing this. I'm up there like going, Lord, how much of my expectation is set by what I want rather than by what you've said? Jesus is doing something here that is so much bigger. It's so much more lasting. It's for so many more people than just them and the relief of their first century political frustrations. He's coming to Jerusalem not to slaughter the Romans, which is what all the Jews wanted at this point. He's coming to Jerusalem to lay his life down for the sins of the world, and that includes the sins of the Romans and your sins and my sins too. Aren't you glad he stuck with the bigger, everlasting plan rather than just solve their local, immediate political frustrations? Aren't you glad? Because he stuck with the bigger plan, God's eternal plan, you and I are clean right now in the eyes of God. We're forgiven forever, 100%. Us, sinful us, forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Here we are. Notice as the crowd and his disciples are all crying out in a song of praise to Jesus the Messiah. It says some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. So the people are all worshiping. There's this grand sound of worship and praise and the Pharisees are screaming, teacher, rabbi is what they would have said. Rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them for making such a big deal about you. The Pharisees were in denial, okay? They were also envious. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. Mark 15, 10. You can read that later. It tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious establishment, they handed him over to crucify him because of envy. Because of envy. 
They loved their positions of esteem in the community. They were not stoked that Jesus was getting all this attention, especially because he was not a submitted member of their good old boys club, especially since he had been repeatedly exposing and rebuking them for their holier-than-thou religious hypocrisy that he, that Jesus said is, you're hindering people. With your religious little thing that you live in, you're, you're hindering people from entering the kingdom of God. They are not happy that he's getting all this attention, so they're screaming. They're not praising the king. They're screaming at him to rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to be silent. Isn't it crazy how envy, and I've experienced this in my own wretched soul, how it can burn in a person, how it can cause them to want to destroy. The chief priest handed him over because of envy. What a sad way to do life. You know, to always be trying to control things and people, to maintain your place or your position, you know, to be slandering people and lying about them, to try to take them down. You know, it's a lack of faith is what it is. It's a lack of faith that God has a plan for my life, and he does. God has a plan for your life, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've been striving and how, much, how exhausted you are from trying to carve out your own place in life. God has a plan for your life. It's a lack of faith when we operate out of envy and lies and slander and you know, trying to take people down. It's a lack of faith that he's able to fulfill you in his will for you. There's always going to be someone who has more, who has something more glamorous, but are we trusting that God has us right where he has us? What a joy it is to trust in God. What a joy it is to be able to rest in what he has for you, to be content you know, trusting and resting in the Lord, there's no need for me to tear anybody else down. What a joy it is to be so at rest in God's love for me. And he loves you like he loves me. He loves us. God so loved the world. That includes you. What a joy to be able to so rest in his love that you can genuinely rejoice when others around you get promoted when they win the lottery or whatever, or they get that car that you've been always wanting to get. What a joy it is to be able to rejoice with others in their successes. We're losing this in the United States. You know, when I, I grew up, I don't know if I, I just grew up where everybody was excited about everybody and Oh, you're going off to this school, and oh, and the people, neighbors rejoice. And I remember in Hungary, we bought a house in Hungary from a, a very wealthy man. It was his weekend house, and it became, his little weekend house was like our palace, you know. But this Hungarian man was sharing with us how sad it is in their culture that when you make it, this guy was the junior chess champion of Hungary, then he started investing in the stock market, and he made millions, and then he built... 15,000 apartment units in Budapest, and he had so much money, he sold us this house. I, he gave us a really good deal because he didn't need the money. That's a whole other story, but I remember him sharing 
This was 30, 25 years ago. How sad it was that he had, he had nobody rejoicing with him in his success. Nobody. And I, and I was thinking, man, in America, like, people rejoice. But you know what? We're, something's happened here. It's the same type of deal. It's kind of sad. You know, people, people are tearing each other down now. Like, it's like, I want to get you if you're, if, you're, if you're succeeding in something. It's sad. It's a lack of faith in God. You know, God has my station in life. He's, God appoints my lot in life, David said. You know, and, and, and we're to be content with it and rejoice in it. But here the Pharisees are just going insane. They're screaming out, tell them to stop singing. Rebuke your disciples. Why? Because they should be looking at us. Not you is what they're thinking. And Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these disciples of mine should be silent, even the stones on the ground here, on the side of the Mount of Olives, even the stones would immediately cry out. In what song do you suppose that the stones would have began singing out? I can't get no sat. No, not, not those stones, right? No, it would have been praise. It would have been praise of Jesus as Messiah. You know, on our tours, as we walk down this path, down the side of the Mount of Olives, today, I love this painting so much because today it's all been developed. It's all, it's been, it's paved now. There's pavement, you know, and there's all these other structures. There's a huge Jewish um, graveyard on the side of the Mount of Olives because the Jews know that the Messiah is going to come through the eastern gate there. And he knows that they're going to raise the dead. And so they want to be right in the place where he's coming because they know what's coming, you know. But every time as we descend this general area here along that path that's now paved, I always reach down and pick up a few stones because Jesus spoke about those stones. If, if the disciples, if I tell my disciples to shut up and to silence, these stones would cry out, you know? And I, had, I have a little, I have these little tiny pebbles I found, but Bob brought me one that he, Pastor Bob, I call him our resident rabbi. He's been to Israel like 65 times. This is a stone on, from the side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus was talking about you, dude. <laughs> If the disciples would have been silent, you would have cried out, you, what a trip. You can come up and touch the stone afterwards if you want. Kiss the stone. (laughs) So what is this dramatic entrance, you know, on a donkey, this big show of praise by this motley crew of disciples of Jesus? Well, in the ancient world, this is interesting because there's a context to all this. In the ancient world, a king who was returning from a victorious battle would typically come into his city on a mighty war horse, okay? It was this picture of victory in battle. And he would be escorted by his citizens and his army. And as he entered, the songs would would, would be sung in praise and acclamation of the mighty conqueror as he came with the symbols of his victory and authority and all. 
And then finally, he would enter the city and go into the prominent temple of the city and make a sacrificial offer in honor of the gods that he would associate himself with. Well, Jesus, as prophesied, he took these well-known norms, these well-known forms of the ancient world, and he turned them on their head, okay? Jesus enters Jerusalem with his little crew of disciples, those real ragtag, ragamuffin guys, and they're all singing out. He's not on a war horse. He's on a humble donkey. He's coming not to slaughter people. He's coming to make peace. There, this, this is, he is, he's turning the, 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 the normal forms of the ancient world on their head. Okay, he's on a mission of peace. He will enter the city of Jerusalem not to make a sacrifice to some idol. He's going to offer himself up a sacrifice for the sin of the world. I think that 2 Corinthians 5.19 is a key verse in the Bible. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.19 says. I, I, I don't think we have it on the screen, but... It says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. When Jesus goes and he offers himself a sacrifice, the blood of God will be shed to take away my sin forever. I love Herm Heiskes. I've known Herm for 40, 40 years almost. But if Herm blood was shed for me, I'd still be lost in my sin, you know? If Pastor Ed's blood was shed for me, it would be of no avail. If my blood was shed for you, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. When the blood of Jesus was spilled, the blood of God was shed, and that is why our sins are gone. The blood of God is what the fancy word efficacious, it's, it's effectual. It did the job, you see? Our sins are gone, okay? Not only for the Jewish people, not only for the Romans, but for you and me here today because he went to the cross. Now, up until now, Jesus has done everything. If you've noticed, as we've gone through the Gospels, he's done everything he could do to discourage people from publicly celebrating him. He would do a miracle and then tell the person, don't tell anybody. Because Jesus knew it would trigger exactly what it triggered. It would trigger the hate and envy of the religious establishment. And, and he knew that they would push for his crucifixion. Until now, the timing was not right until now. But now the timing is right. And that's why he says, I will not rebuke my disciples. I will not rebuke this crowd. The, 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 the religious establishment will be triggered and now is the time that I will be crucified is what he's saying. And next time, because this is an ongoing unfolding the greatest and holiest of all dramas in human history. Next time we'll continue, and we're going to look at verse 41, because it says he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. That's what he saw. He drew near, and as he looked over the city, 
of Jerusalem, he wept. There in a few days, Jesus is going to go to the cross where he became our sin, the Bible says. He became your sin. On the cross, he was your sin. And he took it down with him into death. And guess what? He left your sin in the grave forever. It's gone. He paid the horrifying price that sin deserves. And then on the third day, he rises from the grave. He paid the price. And I love the idea that the resurrection, he holds out the receipt. It's paid in full. You ever get a receipt that's, you know, you've been paying on your mortgage for years and years and you finally get that document paid in full? You call your bank and you say, stop sending them the money. It's paid in full. The resurrection, he paid the price that sin deserves. In the resurrection, it's like he's holding out the receipt. It's been paid in full. Can you hear the gospel this morning? Maybe here in the house, maybe someone listening on the internet. Jesus paid it all. You can know the 100% forever forgiveness of God from your sins. You can be given new life in him. The question is, will you receive him? He doesn't force himself on anybody. Will you receive him? what he's done for you on that cross. It says in Romans 11, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you receive him? Simply receive him. Next time, we're gonna pick up in verse 41. The worship team, you guys can come on out because we're gonna close in one last song. But next time, we're gonna pick up And we're going to see what was breaking Jesus' heart when he looked down over the city of Jerusalem. Because the the word there in the Greek, it says that he began to sob over the city. But we're going to save that for next time. We're going to dive into the heart of Jesus, which is always healing, which is always transforming. But that's what we'll do next time.